previously on the Temporal Trek podcast. Hang on a minute. The device is saying I'm in Russia. Isn't that... That's Lenin. Revolution. That can't be right. I've already skipped this decade. Who are you? Why do you kind of look like me? Who am I? Who are you? Oh, swipe left on the device. This is an alternate reality. That means the next episode isn't happening in my timeline. It's happening in yours. Space time. The ever-expanding frontier. This is the record of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. It's mission to observe Trek from outside existence to the Big Bang to the end of the universe and all existence. To seek out every second and contemplate every eon. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. Right, right, so just let me get this straight. In your timeline, there was no communist revolution, Lenin was killed, the royal family stayed in power, Nazi Germany rises just the same as always, but didn't perceive you as a threat, so didn't try to invade you. They focus on the West and push into America. After all of the events we just watched unfold, Russia then rises up and manages to liberate most of Europe with the aid of a newly emboldened America with the captured alien technology, forming an American-Russian alliance that goes on to form, what was it again? The United Space Probe Agency. United Space Probe. Wait a minute, Starfleet used to call itself that. We were going through a whole phase of rebranding after we discovered a dozen new species. United Space Probe Agency. So there are elements of both of our timelines that are very similar. But it still doesn't explain why my doppelganger, sorry, you, speaks with a Russian accent? Surely, after Europe was liberated, everyone just went back to their own countries, right? No, 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 no. Um, the Nazi Germany invaded England. Lots of the population were evacuated. Uh, some to America, some to Canada. Your family, my family... They went to Russia, but they settled. They found that they could build a life there. As part of that, we had to kind of acclimatize, we had to change, we changed our name to make it sound more Russian. You see, in my time, I'm part of the United Space Probe Agency, but also the godlike entity R. I'm sorry, what? The godlike entity R in my universe is called Q. Huh. Funny. I wonder if there's only timeline with alphabet of gods. <laughs> anyway, the godlike entity, he's stuck in some prison dimension. He's forcing me to watch a TV show. Yes, okay. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. He's forcing you to watch the TV show, record it as a podcast, try and find something that can get all of the gods out of that dimension of wherever they are. Ah, seem like we have similar life after all. It's still pretty remarkable. I mean, given all the changes, surely you should look a lot different to me. Yeah, convenient plot device. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, this is the radio. 
Who knows? Yeah, I suppose that's true. Well, looks like the bubble is where we're supposed to be. Um, look, I don't mind taking this episode if you want to sit this one out. Um, take a break. Take a load off. Oh, that's very nice of you. Uh, of me. <laughs> um, okay, I'll go over there and uh, take a nap. I just ate a lot of cosmic pizza. and That's really good, isn't it? I know, I know, right? Um, I maybe need to sleep it off. You do show and I broadcast, okay? Maybe if we do crossover like this in future, I do one of yours. Yeah, alright, sounds pretty good. Okay, I go sleep now. Wow. That's amazing. He literally just put his head down. Straight out. It's crazy. Huh. Welcome back to the Temple Trek podcast. Here we are in Season 1, Part 1, Episode 3A. Yes, this is a really big episode, and there is no way I'd be able to fit it all into one episode, so I am going to split it. We're going to cover everything from the end of Zero Hour in Season 3 of Enterprise through to Stormfront Part 1. Then in the next episode, I'll be doing Stormfront Part 2, as well as our roundup and ratings criteria. Now, like I say, we've got a lot to get through, and we're already blasting through at least eight minutes here. So, let's get started. The difficulty is, with crossing over into an alternate timeline or an alternate reality, is that we're not entirely sure how they got there. The time travel is a little bit loose. So I'm going to have to step out of the section we're watching and try and make some educated guesses. Before this, we've had what was called the Zindi War Arc, all of Season 3 of Enterprise. What happens is Archer is separated from the Enterprise and has to destroy a superweapon. There's an explosion and he gets sent somewhere. As far as the crew know, he is dead. So I'm going to start at 40 minutes and 51 seconds on zero hour, where Archer will reappear. However, we will be watching a scene, then going back to 38 minutes and 23 seconds, joining back up with what we see the crew of the Enterprise doing. So we're already watching the episode in an odd order. It is purely because we don't really see how the Enterprise time travels or moves into this alternate time. It's alluded to in the episode, but it's never clearly shown. Normally we see a bright flash or some sort of... Uh, portal opening up, but we just don't get it here. So, 40 minutes, 51 seconds. We see the body of Archer. He's been blooded, he's in some sort of military tent, but all of the garb, all of the costume, it looks like it fits more into a 1940s period drama. And it does. In fact, the uniforms of the officers moving in, as a nurse is telling them in German that she's found this badly burned man, they are German SS officer uniforms. One of them is being worn by a human. The other being worn by an alien with red eyes. Now, this alien makeup, it uh, put me in mind of the Buffy series. Kind of looks like the master, the lead vampire from the first season of Buffy. It's impressive. It looks certainly a damn sight better than most of the forehead aliens that we see in Star Trek or, you know, a little tiny ridge on a nose. But but ultimately, I always felt like 
it's too obvious that they're trying to make out these are the bad guys. Now, of course, they've allied themselves with the Nazis. Of course, they're the bad guys. But just because they are in a Nazi uniform doesn't necessarily mean they'd have to be the bad guys. What if they're being forced to help the Nazis? What if this is some grandiose conspiracy? And I think that is my overall problem with this episode. But I'll get more into that later. We're sort of left on a cliffhanger. We're sort of left on a cliffhanger as we see the alien Nazi and it stops at 41 minutes and 49 seconds. As I say, we're going to jump back in the same episode in zero hour, back to 38 minutes, 23 seconds. Now, as I said before, I'm going to make some educated guesses here. Enterprise has come out of the Zindi arc. Um, It is being escorted by one of the aliens or part of the aliens of the Zindi. We'll go into more details when we get to that in our full episode reviews. But they are dropped off by another ship. They move off and then that ship leaves and goes through something called a vortex. Because it then leaves, they are an outside observer. Once they are out of the picture, that's the point where I see them as removing themselves from space-time by going through whatever that vortex is, and therefore the Enterprise has now time-travelled. They are not being observed, therefore time travel has occurred. Um, Whoever or whatever has caused them to travel um, has not been seen by us, the audience, or by an outside alien inside the show as well. The whole crew seem tired. They are um, happy to see Earth, as you imagine they would be after a long, drawn-out conflict. Now, the thing I did like about this scene was that it put me in mind of all the times when I hear astronauts talking about seeing the Earth from the International Space Station or uh, when they're in orbit and how dramatic a picture and how it, it changes your perspective. So, when uh, I think it's Trip who says, you know, it's the, the greatest sight he's ever seen. Um, when he says that, it's a really nice feeling and it sort of just ties it all together. And it's one of the aspects I really love about Enterprise is that it felt like it was a, it had a connective tissue between the NASA and space exploration we see today all the way through to what will be Enterprise. There is that nice connect there. There's a mention by Reed, Malcolm Reed, the weapons officer, that the reptilians have destroyed Yosemite Station. So the Zendi arc has had a wider impact and even affected Earth. So they're starting to talk about uh, getting back in touch with Earth. You know, they've come home, but no one seems to be talking to them and no one's communicating. Because of that, they then send a shuttle pod down to the planet. From the air, Trip then says, it looks pretty normal to me. Now, that seems a bit odd that I know that they have now time-travelled to the 1940s. We, as the audience, know that um, in the next few seconds. But surely 1940s San Francisco would look a lot different to even today's San Francisco, let alone the San Francisco that would be their era uh, in the 22nd century. We then see them being attacked by World War II planes. And at this point, we don't know what those planes are, but they are clearly not of the same era. We then stop at 40 minutes, 51 seconds. We come back at 1 minute and 4 seconds after the catch-up for Stormfront Part 1. Now, Travis, he identifies these planes as P-51s, and he remembers seeing them in air shows. It's kind of nice to think that there's still air shows going on. Um, I work in a, a historical museum site, which is all about, you know, uh, showing off uh, old vehicles. You know, it's a dockyard. It has actual ships um, in the, the the docks 
on display. We do have festivals that happen where you see different kinds of steam engines on site and things like that. So it's nice to think that those things are still going on in 200 years' time. Whoever they are, they seem to open up uh, fire. Whoever they are, they seem to open fire on the shuttlecraft. Now, again, it's a bit of unbelievability here. Um, it's a shuttle pod designed to work in space, and it's being attacked with bullets and gunfire from 1940s Earth. They seem to take damage, and I'm not entirely sure why. Surely there's something on that pod that would prevent them from... Uh, any kind of serious damage. But for the sake of plot, we'll let them off for this time. We stop at 1 minute and 49 seconds, coming back at 3 minutes and 8 seconds, dodging the credit sequence entirely. Now I'm going to go more into that when we get to Enterprise properly in our rewatch, which is only a season away. We see Archer. He's being transported by the Germans. And there is this sort of swaggery German officer trying to intimidate him, talking about um, uh, American entertainment. He lists a couple of actresses. We've got Rita Hayworth, Betty Grable, and Veronica Lake. Now, Rita and Betty were pre-war famous. So at this point, we still don't know what year we've come to. We know it must be the 1940s. We know it's sort of World War II era, but we don't have a year yet to then step out of the episode and do our history review. Veronica Lake. Now, by name-checking her, we know it cannot be before 1941. Her first starring role was in 1941, so she wouldn't really be a household name, certainly not to a German officer but she didn't appear until I Wanted Wings in 1941 and wasn't a leading lady until Sullivan's Travels in the same year, where she got top billing. The officer is still being really um, smarmy about it. You know, maybe you could introduce us and all this kind of stuff. And um, Archer has a weird look on his face. You know, it's almost as though you have to question whether he recognised those names or not. The actor, Scott Bakula, would know those names. I would know those names purely because, you know, I have a father who in, who loves those those movies and grew up and introduced me to sort of that era of movies. You know, my generation may still know those names, but someone 200 years in the future, would they know the names? Now, there is a convention on Enterprise where they watch old movies and they have a movie night because they don't have a holodeck for entertainment. But even saying that, you know, it seems unusual that he would know it. But Archer plays into it. At this point, we aren't given any suggestion that they are in America, as we will later find out. At this point, you could still assume that Archer is in Europe in the same time period that Enterprise has just gone over to America. However, I think that ends just as they are attacked by what appear to be resistance fighters. So at first, you might think it's the French resistance. But then you start noticing things in their costumes, little details, trilbies, the um, sort of pinstripe monster suit, the typical kind of double-breasted button suit, things that wouldn't normally be in a look of a French resistance fighter. We then start to realise the Nazis are in America. Back on the Enterprise, we then see a briefing room scene. We hear a uh, speech from Winston Churchill that Hoshi has found. Um, this is actually a real speech given by Winston Churchill, not given during a time of war, but it's actually a speech he gave in America much later. He talks of world order, world anarchy, 
and they start to say that things aren't lining up. There is uh, a disconnect between what we know of history and to what we're actually finding out, just as I am with my doppelganger just over there. Can't believe he's still asleep. There's the back and forth about the Vulcan position on time travel and Trip gives to Paul a hard time, you know, because he talks about having to remove bullets from the bulkhead of the shuttle pod. Again, how that's true, no idea. There's a weird leap that Travis makes here. He says maybe we're here for a reason. Now, earlier in Enterprise, there are things that maybe might lead you to suggest that this there's some outside entity or some sort of intelligence that has purposely moved the Enterprise. So maybe you could let him off for making the statement that someone's behind it. But at this point in the episode, we still have nothing more to go on. This could all just be a complete accident. It seems a bit of a leap to go straight to a reason behind something. Now, had this been an established trait of Travis, maybe he was ultra-religious and he's looking for meaning in everything, um, that would be great. Unfortunately, as most Star Trek fans will tell you who've seen Enterprise, Travis and many of the other characters never get that kind of depth and involvement, and, and it's just not quite clear to say where Travis is making that statement. But it is a line that always stood out for me. We see our first glimpse of a Sulaban on board the Enterprise. Now the Sulaban, again, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but we do know that they are one of the main enemies of the Enterprise series. They are part of what's called the Temporal Cold War. Now that's also something that Travis would have been aware of, so maybe that played into his line about having to be there for a reason. We then see the aliens dressed in full Nazi garb. There's even some aliens who are in scientific, uh, the white coats. Um, it, it's very weird to see. But again, looking at the the makeup in the light, in a lighter surrounding, it, it's it's a great piece of makeup. It's really well designed, but it just seems too on the nose, too obvious that these are the bad guys. Now, looking into the episode, trying to research as much as I could, I don't tend to do this for the podcast, but I, I wanted to get an idea of where they got that idea from. Why did they go for that particular look? This episode was trying to be a one and done story. They didn't want to drag it out for too long. They didn't want to make these aliens a mainstay of the show. They wanted a one-off adversary that the Enterprise could fight against and then move on. So I could kind of undersee that you, you want the the makeup to be the shorthand. Um, so the Enterprise uh, is, is obviously the good guys. And then you've got the vampiric looking bad guys who are always going to be the bad guys. Now that we have Discovery, now that we have Picard, don't get me wrong. I like a mustache twirling villain, you know, someone who stands out. Um, if it were Picard, you know, the Larissa character, she was an out and out villain. Great. But sometimes I like a little bit gray area with a character. You know, are they bad? Are they only bad because they make certain decisions to survive? You know, it, it, for me, cements why Picard and Discovery are doing so well with Star Trek because they do introduce that sort of grey area for so many characters. We come back to Trip and to Paul. They are having a discussion about the briefing room and how uh, Trip didn't mean to come down so hard on her about the Vulcan position on time travel. Uh, they are then talking about how they are um, missing being back at home. They just wanted to get back to Earth. Trip then talks about his biggest decision being whether it's Tahiti or Cancun. 
I've got my problems with the character of Trip, but I'll go more into that when we get to Enterprise properly. But you can't deny the man has taste. Tahiti or Cancun, it's a tough call. Reed then comes in, he talks about there being uh, battles in Virginia, Ohio, uh, the Nazis have managed to reach America, and that from what he knows of history, that shouldn't be the case. We then move over to a scene with Phlox and Porthos. Phlox is looking after Porthos, which is Archer's dog, and Daniels appears. Now, I'm from uh, the future, and I recognise a temporal agent's uniform whenever I see one. Daniels is a character we are going to meet more in Enterprise as well, but for now, he doesn't look too good. He seems to be dying, but we're left on a cliffhanger there. We move back to Archer. He's being nursed back to health by a lady called Alicia Travers. And this is a great callback to our uh, previous episode, episode one of this part of the season. Um, she put me in mind of Edith Keeler straight away. She's showing unbelievable kindness to a man who's been injured and she doesn't know who he is. She's brought him into her home and she's nursing him back to health. It made me think uh, it would have been a nice little thing to say, you know, oh, I learned these nursing skills from uh, an old lady um, who uh, taught my grandmother or something like that, you know. Um, that her name was Edith, you know, just a tiny little mention. Because this is New York, we, as we find out, they are in New York, which is exactly where City on the Edge of Forever took place. There's even a great line uh, where she says that based on the uniform that she sees Archer wearing, he must be a sailor, which is exactly what Edith said as well. She gives us our year, 1944. So we're going to step out from the episode and then we're going to do our history lesson. Now I've got a small connection here. 1944 is the year that the HMS Cavalier was launched. Cavalier is the ship I actually work on when I'm working at the Chatham Historic Dockyards. She was a destroyer of the CA class. Now she's one of the 96 emergency destroyers that were built to replace the 120 lost destroyers in World War II. The idea being that they were fast, could escort food parcels, food runs to America and Russia. In this case, the Cavalier was running food to Russia and she was launched on April 1944. They would later be called the Greyhounds of the Sea. Now, 1944 also means that in my timeline was the Battle of Normandy, aka D-Day, the 6th of June Operation Overlord, the biggest land invasion ever. 155,000 Allied troops land on the beaches. Now, less reported is the German response to D-Day. In 13th of June are the first V-1 rockets being fired from Germany. So Germany clearly has rocket technology in my timeline. As we're about to find out, they've got something a little bit more powerful up their sleeve in this timeline. By July of this year, you've got the Soviet advance in Minsk. You've got President Roosevelt getting his fourth term. Japanese forces face a heavy loss in Saipan and the US begin their invasion of Guam. By August, there are several bomb plots to remove Hitler. So there's a war within the Nazi party, not just fighting the Allies. Many assassination attempts, and all of them fail, unfortunately. The Russians liberate the Baltic countries. British and South African troops push heavily into Italy. Guam is eventually liberated, and Paris is also liberated, and the Free French are able to re-establish their foothold, pushing back 
against the Nazi invasion. Now there's of course so much detail I could go into here, but we just don't have the time in the episode. If you're ever interested, it is always a fascinating part of history. But for now, back on with the episode. It is nice, the, the conversation between Lisa Travers and Archer, you know, they've got a lot in common, you know, because Archer is a captain who isn't too far removed in history, he has enough that he can go on. And there is a lovely conversation. And there's one line in this conversation where Alicia Travers that says that Brooklyn was a lovely neighborhood, even for coloreds. I'm not going to go into it now, but there is another scene coming up where I think there's something more to be said in that point. We cut to a scene with the White House. Now, it's got a Nazi flag flying over the he overhead and it has a tank out on the lawn and it looks so dated and cheap. It's a shot that looks just straight out of something uh, like the Command and Conquer game series, the Red Alert game series. Um, if you've never played the game, it's uh, like a top-down base-building war game, but it had a very sci-fi premise. The idea being that uh, Albert Einstein develops a time machine, goes back in time and assassinates Hitler before his rise to power. That changes the entire game, and uh, we come into what would have been World War II, but the Russian, communist Russia under Stalin, is the one that becomes the dominant war power and tries to take Europe, eventually trying to conquer the world. It's a great game, it's cheesy, it is so over-the-top and camp, uh, but it is really funny, and they've got these cutscenes where it's not digital characters, it's not CGI, it is filmed actors in front of green screen studios. It looks cheap. It looked cheap then, it looks cheaper now. And this scene of the White House, it clearly shows for me that whoever was giving the budget to the Enterprise show didn't see another future and didn't see another season into it, so they clearly weren't giving them the money. There's so much more detail they could have given. You know, they could have had the shot during, you know, the night time to just, you know, take the edge off of the CGI, but it looks so cheap and dated. We get the talk between Vosk, our lead alien, and a German commandant. Now, the German commandant is a very, very cliche kind of character. You know, he's the guy who thinks he's in charge, but he's really not in charge. There's a map behind him that shows sort of the, the battle lines uh, between the Nazi forces and the Allied forces in America who are trying to push them back out. From what I could see, it stretches from somewhere in Cleveland all the way down to Georgia, but uh, I'll come back to that later. Vosk is making a lot of demands of the Nazis, and this is a problem I have with the episode. Vosk needs to make something. He's clearly after some technology. He wants to build something for himself. Now, he's selling advanced weaponry, or um, the designs for advanced weaponry, at least, to the Nazis. He's trying to give them plasma rifles and um, planes that will have lasers on you know, attached. He's selling them this great technology, but he's clearly after it for himself and he wants to build something for himself now we'll later find out what that actually is but whatever the project was why is he in america it seems unusual if he was going to build something like this you've got a uh, occupied france you've got an occupied uh, uk you could do experiments that he's trying to do without being anywhere near berlin and germany you know the if it backfires if it's a massive massive explosion if it's uh, nuclear in any way it wouldn't affect Germany. It's very odd why he would be building his facility in an only tenuously 
occupied America. It, it could so easily be swept back. Now, you might maybe argue from the conversation they have that the German commandant is spying on Vosk, so he feels that if he's further away from you know, the Viper's Nest, you know, the deeper parts of, of Nazi Germany, maybe he feels he can get away with more? I don't know. But it seems like too much of a strategic risk. He's after tons of aluminium, tons of steel, and uh, the commandant is saying, you know, we're having allied counterattacks, you know, they're pushing back in Africa, the Russians are retaking Moscow. So parts of Russia have fallen. So wherever my family ended up in this timeline, I hope they were far away. But even a Nazi Germany with the backing of advanced alien technology still can't hold on to all of their territories. Voss goes one stage further and starts saying, well, what if we designed some plagues? What if we built a, um, a virus that would kill non-Aryans? Uh, clearly knows that Aryan genes aren't a real thing and I'm, i strongly suspect the commandant knows that as well and he knows he's being played as we will later find out but it seems a dangerous play to to focus on something that he knows he would never be able to deliver in order to regain his trust we go back to enterprise daniel's body is some sort of state of flux uh, he is both young and old at the same time so he's going to die we go back to uh, earth and we see archer as well and he's starting to hang out with some guys who clearly look like they're in the mob. They come to see Archer. They talk about how he's got a price on his head, $10,000. You know, why don't we hand you over? All this kind of thing. But those monsters, to get to Archer, just had to pass on the street. Some Nazis dragging people out of their houses and even shooting an unarmed man in the streets. As if you needed any other reason to hate the Nazis. There's also a bit of contention. The leader of the mob is called Sal. And he talks about how there was the Allied retreat from New York and that he sees them as abandoning all of the civilians. As you would understandably think of, you know, the mob being a strong entity would think that they probably, you know, would have been able to get all the people out. Um, you know, to have all the backing of the US military just leave them, it would look like a strategic retreat and, and someone as powerful as a mob boss would probably see them as um, insulting him by leaving him behind. Back on the Enterprise, Depol tells Daniels that Archer is dead. Surely he would know. Now, he is the ultimate reason for their time travel. Travis was right. There was a reason behind it. But if he moved Archer, surely he would know, unless there was some unforeseen side effect of moving the Enterprise that caused a ripple and whatever explosion that Archer was near in the last season, maybe pushed him with it. It takes a little bit of explaining, a little bit of head cannon to work it out. So it's a bit of a weird thing that he doesn't know about Archer. But he does tell us about the Temporal Cold War. This again is another story from Enterprise that I felt had so much potential but never really got the just due that it needed. I really enjoy Temporal Cold War stories that the, you know the time travel elements of any star trek story that's why i've got a podcast about it um i know lots of people don't like it and i think it's because it was just left it makes sense to have it because you've got this series that was set after 50 almost 50 years of star trek before it you know you wanted to tie in to what will happen in the future but also allow for enterprise to be its own thing at the same time so you introduce the idea of a temporal cold war you can have time travel stories where they see the future then how hopeful it might be but because it never lives up to it it does feel disappointing daniels then dies after imparting the important information nice classic cliche for you 
and we find out back on Earth the aliens have detected the Enterprise. We go back to Alicia and Archer. We find out that her husband is in the Pacific on a destroyer. The Germans are taking all the food and not leaving much for everyone else. But there is a sort of unspoken resistance through Billie Holiday. And this is another thing that sort of gets me, is that someone very talented that we, in my generation, know watching the show. But would a man 200 years in the future know the music? I would hope so, but would he? Archer then reveals he saw an alien when he was first moved into the camp. That doesn't seem to be news to them. So there are rumours that these aliens are already here. Back on Enterprise, Trip is fixing one of the pods that got damaged, only to have the Sulaban we saw earlier try and steal it from him. There's a bit of a fist fight, a bit of a shootout between the two of them. Again, some really dated looking CGI because the Sulaban can adapt themselves and move and, and sort of slither their way out of any kind of chokehold which Trip tries to do. The Sulaban then steals the shuttle pod after besting Trip in a fight. One thing I do like is that T'Pol doesn't hold back. She immediately orders for that shuttle pod to be fired on by the Enterprise, which they do, but it crash lands in New York. We go back onto Earth and it's the next day. And this is the scene I was uh, talking about earlier where she talked about Brooklyn being a nice neighbourhood. Archer and Alicia walk down the street to see two German officers, two Nazis, and they then proceed to racially abuse Alicia and even Archer for associating with her. They say horrible things. Some I'm not going to repeat here because I just hate the words. But they do say that that um, maybe she should go back to Africa and run through the jungle. I've had to record this episode <laughs> about three times already now, um, mostly for sound issues, um, lots of sound volumes and everything being thrown out. But another reason was the difficulty in approaching this subject. The third time I tried to record this, and this is now the fourth time, was just after the tragic events of George Floyd. One in a very long chain of unjust killing of black people in America due to an institutionalised form of racism. Nothing overt, nothing like we're seeing in the episode, nothing I've just mentioned. But the belief that by profiling black people, you can then treat them differently is a deplorable practice. George Floyd had the right to be arrested. He was a criminal, fair enough. But he didn't have the right to be killed in custody. He didn't have the right to have his neck stamped on. There was just a level that was too far. And unfortunately, it's a story that seems to be too prevalent in not only American society, but in the society I live in today. Now, I am a white man on a podcast of a certain age. I've grown up in a culture that I thought was above this sort of thing. And it shames me to think that today, this century, this time, we haven't learned the lessons of, of what my favourite TV show was telling us almost 50 years ago. We need to give a voice to the voiceless. We need to stamp this sort of thing out once and for all. And before we move on, I just want to say that the Temporal Trek podcast says Black Lives Matter. We get back to the episode. Both Archer and Enterprise are trying to figure out what's going on. There's a lot of backwards and forwards. 
This episode itself does seem to take a long time, as you're probably already realising listening to a podcast about it. <laughs> Trip and Travis go down to destroy the pod. They are going to blow it up so that no one finds it, so there's no damage to the timeline. Sal and Archer are going to go and find out what's going on about one of the aliens. Now, one of the aliens sort of goes through a semi-informant who tries to help him find a few things. So, you know, through connections of connections in sort of typical mobster style, they eventually get to the alien and they interrogate him. Archer gets hold of a communicator from him and learns that the Enterprise is here. Sal shoots the alien dead after calling him a Martian. Now, this is a little trope that we're going to see over the next couple of episodes that uh, any alien is always a Martian. Just before they leave, more Nazis are showing up. It's clearly an ambush. There's a bit of a firefight. Archer uses the communicator to beam both himself and Alicia to the Enterprise. Unfortunately, Sal gets killed. And there's a great little scene as Archer comes back onto the Enterprise. All the human crew are obviously delighted to see him. They show that, they express that. And then T'Pol kind of looks at him as though she wants to hug him. And you kind of half expect her to. But just in her eyes, she has to sort of hold back in her very Vulcan way and and not leap in to hug him. That's one of the things that I do love about T'Pol and Jolene Blaylock. I've seen a lot of criticism of her saying that she's wooden, that um, she's not acting. But she is. She is a typical Vulcan. Now, not all the way through the Enterprise, things will change. But for me, she plays it so well. There are times where you see that her Vulcan veneer breaks and that there's a little bit of emotion creeping to the surface, but overall, she is a great depiction of a Vulcan. Archer then comes to Daniels, who's been slowly revived back, uh, having just sort of lapsed into a sort of coma. He just comes back to reiterate that Vosk is the person who started the Temporal Cold War. If you can stop Vosk, you can win One World Two, and you can reset the timeline. We have a very clear and simple mission. Now this is a temporal thing I want to address here. I don't believe that that is the case. Even if you remove Vosk and stop the Temporal Cold War, you have still created a divergent timeline. By him being trapped in this timeline in 1944, an alternate 1944, this timeline will still exist. Even if they undo what he's about to do and stop the Temporal Cold War overall, we come back to this idea of the bootstrap paradox. You've got the loops of paradoxes as they affect each other, but there's always the original timeline. There is the alternate universe created by that timeline. Just as in Time's Arrow, there had to be an original mission where a version of Data went back, lost his head in the 19th century, but wasn't necessarily the time adventure that we saw, to then start the bootstrap paradox of always having Data's head in 19th century Earth. The same thing happens here. Voss goes back to 1944, there is undoing that, and then there's the Temporal Cold War to then do it again, and so forth and so forth. But there was always the original timeline when Vosk appears in 1944 in the alternate version where Lenin was shot in 1917. We then cut to a scene of Vosk as he examines his massive, huge, conduit time machine, and then he tells Trip and Travis you will be interrogated. And we stop at 41 minutes and 47 seconds. As I say, there's not going to be a review this episode. It's already gone on far too long. <laughs> and uh, um, I will join you next time for Stormfront Part 2 at 1 minute and 4 seconds. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, myself and my doppelganger will see you 
in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at rider underscore coattail or contact me directly at hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore hitch underscore writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream.